I'm impatient, but I'm also not an idiot. And I have seen who this society allows to be angry. We don't let women get angry. A woman is angry for a minute. She's a bitch. She's, you write her off. But a guy is angry. He's strong. Black person's angry. They're ungrateful. A white person's angry. They're, oh, they're, they're a leader. And there's just, there's very few examples that are so clear as motherfuckers going with guns to violently demand that they pay another person to cut their hair indoors. You're not willing to sacrifice nothing for nobody, but you are willing to kill for that? Oh, we're, we're definitely not on the same page. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. On this show, I talk with people living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. Thank you so much for showing up today. I'm so incredibly glad each and every one of you are here. If you love this show, hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. Friends, you're in for a treat today. My guest is the intriguing, wise, and prolific Baratunde Thurston. You may know Baratunde from his work at The Onion, or maybe you know him from his work at The Daily Show, or maybe you've read his New York Times bestselling book, How to Be Black, and I haven't even begun to scratch the surface on all the incredible work Baratunde has done. He is also a fantastic podcast host. If you haven't checked out How to Citizen with Baratunde, you're missing out. Baratunde recently received the Social Impact Award at the 2021 iHeartRadio Podcast Awards for his work as executive producer and host of this podcast. Now, during this conversation, we talk about his amazing name because we had to address that. We talk about growing up in Washington, D.C., his incredible career, being a black man in America, his thoughts on all the things that have happened over the past few years under the Trump presidency and in this country and around the world as a result. We talk about whether or not he feels hopeful right now and so much more. Friends, I loved this conversation so much. I know you will as well. When we wrapped up our conversation, I felt like I could keep going for hours and hours, and that's always a good sign. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason Email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the wonderful Baratunde Thurston. Here we go. Baratunde Rafiq Thurston. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good, Nick. How are you? I could not be happier to be talking with you today. I'm so excited. Um, this has been... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago we scheduled this, but I've been an admirer of your work for, you know, some time, and so I'm excited that we actually get to connect now for 60, 75 minutes or so. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Nick. Did I say your name correctly? Hit me one more time. Baratunde Rafiq Thurston. You crushed it. So I'm Latino. My dad is Guatemalan. So when I see that name, when I first saw it years ago, when I was first introduced to work, I, I wanted to say Baratunde, right? Like yes. get that get that Latino like spice in there. Yes. Um, 
but I'll 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 try to I'll try to remember that it's Baratunde. Day. You actually no no no, I, no 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 stop. I'm gonna stop you right there. I grew up in D.C. in uh, Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant area, and there were a lot of Central American folks uh, who increasingly were in the neighborhood, and they would say Baratunde. There we and go. Like, oh, that's my joint. Baratunde. It is my favorite version of my name. Is the the Latin version so. You roll that R if you feel so called. Fantastic. I will. I will. I love it. You actually have a, I love at the beginning of your TED talk, which we'll get to in a little bit, you talk about the three parts of your name that really have nothing to do with, can you just talk about, yeah, the three parts of your name that aren't really, you know, they don't really have much to do with your background and why your parents chose those names. Cause they're, they're all, you know, very unique. Obviously you don't get to choose your, your surname, but, uh, Baratunde and Rafik, why, why that name? It's very special and it's very unique. Um, yeah. So the name, talk about it. Yeah, so Baratunde is uh, based on a Yoruba name from the people of Nigeria, which is Babatunde, and that means uh, father returns. That's almost like the literal translation, Baba being father, Tunde being return. So if you ever know any Nigerians, it's like Olatundes and Obatundes and all kinds of Tundes. That's right. That's like a common suffix on, uh, on a Yoruba name. And Baba is a common prefix in all kinds of societies. Papa, Baba, you know, you have Arabic, you have Spanish, you have, um, you know, Yoruba, all kinds of languages. So my folks, especially my mother, wanted to have a, a little piece of Africa to, to impart on me. So they went shuffling through books. I was born in 77. A lot of, a lot of Black people were rediscovering their Africanness back then. And this book said... Uh, Baratunde was just like Babatunde. You just change one little letter. It's kind of like John with an H or without an H. It's optional. And they went with the Baratunde version, which no Nigerian ever has supported because that is <laughs> not a thing. You can't just like change the word. But this book written for African-Americans was like, you can totally just change it. And, uh, and it said that some of the meanings also was one who was chosen. And my mother had, had a series of miscarriages before I showed up. And so my arrival was significant. I was definitely on like super CP time. I was a bit late by the expectations, but it was meaningful that I arrived here. So I got Baratunde as a political act uh, and a mild mistake, according to the to the people whose name we were uh, claiming. Right. But it it doesn't really matter. It's a it's a dope name, and I've been real proud of it. And I kind of understood the political reasons for it. It's a very strong political act for your parents to like take out all their Afrocentrism on your birth certificate. But that was the first one. And then Rafiq is a, is a Arabic word meaning like friend or companion. Mm. And I don't really know why they chose that language or that culture to pick the name from. I didn't, I don't know if there was another book and there was like, Got the book of African names and the book of Arabic names, and we're just remixing this. I, there's no one else in the family. There's no direct, like the Africa thing. We're clearly black. So like at some point we were African. The Arabic thing, I really, I don't know. Maybe there was like a flirtation with Islam. Not really sure. My mom and dad are no longer around for me to question them directly. But I do know my mother told me that the combo, Baratunde Rafiq, uh, was meant to mean kingly companion. And I was like, oh, I kind of like that. Mm. I like that vibe. Um, and then Thurston is uh, the slave name. You know, like that's that. I know exactly where that, why that exists. And that's some old, you know, European name of some property owner when the property was people. 
And uh, I didn't change it to X, you know, or anything like sure. that. Just kept that one. So, yeah, Baratunde Rafik Thurston. There's a lot in the name. I ask that because names are super special to me. I uh, They weren't to my parents, and I love my parents to death. But um, but I also understand it. I'm one of 12 kids. And so they, at some wait, point... Wait, wait, say, I mean, we got a slow, whoa, whoa. I know you're interviewing me, but you're one of 12 kids. So there's like a, a child per disciple kind of situation going on. What's 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 happening here? I don't know what they were thinking other than they were bored um, <laughs> and they really liked having sex and also not thinking about the future and how much pain and suffering was to come. But, <laughs> or only thinking about the or future. Or only thinking about that. And making a lot of bets. They're like, <laughs> one and of they, these kids is going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, right? <laughs> and, you know, we're all, we, we kind of defy all the odds because not, like, no children were, to, to the best of my knowledge, she never miscarried any any children. Mm. No, none of us have died. Um, there are no real, uh, <laughs> there are some issues, but there's no real, like, issues, right? Like, there yeah. weren't any, like, oh, we can tie this shit that you're going through. Uh, or the shit that you're doing to yourself to, you know, 12 kids in this enormous family or whatever. Um, so it's kind of, it's worked out pretty well, but but they didn't, you know, there's three of us that have, there's six of us that have, that share three middle names. So they they gave the same middle name to, you know, three sets of us. I'm, yeah, you know. That's just efficiency, man. Right. Like they just ran out of names, but we, you know, I'm, I'm, I, we have three kids and we spent. I think the most laborious part of having these children or preparing was thinking about the names because they, yeah. you you carry these names. Not that John and David and whatever. It's nothing wrong with those those kind of more common names, but names are so important. And you just shared that with me, and we've never met before. But I already feel much like almost closer to you, knowing yeah. sort of the little history there, even the stuff you didn't know about. What why Rafik? Right, this Arabic mm -hmm. thing. What's the tie there? But there's some mystery there. And so we gave our kids, you know, pretty meaningful names. And I just, I just love names. I, I think, and, and we're so bad here, like w Westerners, white people are pretty bad at thinking profoundly about names, but you go outside and I've done a ton of, I've traveled all over the world. Yeah. And when you go to Asia, when you go to Africa, when you go to uh, the Caribbean, like there's just these, they tell you their name and then there's a story, there's a story behind it. There's, there's a real deep meaning. And I love that. Yeah. And there's usually, um, I mean, I, there's there's a richer and more known culture around the name. It's either like there's a tradition of naming your child after other family members and, you know, tying it in to what you name your kid is almost like a, like the lineage is, is coded in the name or it's auspicious and around the position of the stars and like what was happening weather-wise at the time. So the name is a place marker in space or in time or both. And in the U.S., I think we, our tradition is to abandon traditions in some ways. Like you have refugees here, you have people fleeing, you have folks who think they're better than the places they come from. So they often don't want to remember that old world stuff. And so you're like, we're just here to make a new, like it was called the new world. And so why would you bring all that old world stuff here? Whatever, you'll just be named after one of these biblical folk. Let's keep it moving. Um, or maybe just after your grandmother. You know, Hazel begets Hazel or sure. Meredith begets Meredith, something kind of like that. And uh, and there's a, I think there's a sense, especially with white America, 
there's a there's this odd tension of like a cultural jealousy where someone decided a while ago that to become white you have to drop all this tradition stuff mm. you got to drop your ethnic garb and your 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 uh, your your mother tongue and your cultural you know expression and just be kind of mayonnaise you know like that's how you're you're a member of the club you're not italian anymore you're not greek anymore you let all that stuff go you're you're john all right or you're jane and that's it you're john sixpack and so and then now we have all this more proud cultures and it's like i want some, i want some of that like that looks pretty cool but the relationship but then you get cultural appropriation it's complicated it's but i think there is something interesting because i've just i've been around a lot of white people a lot of my life and i can feel they're like oh you're you have such a cool story and a cool name i'm just white and it's like but that was also in a purposeful cultural choice through history to try to flatten whiteness to make it this thing that came with like these other powers yeah. not the cultural history but uh, economic dominance so there was like a trade you know we we jumped right into the deep end and i love that right there from the get-go i guess it's partly my fault bringing up the name stuff that's that's really <laughs> helpful but before we dive too far in baratunde yeah. uh let's i, I want to know how you're doing like beyond the pleasantries of like, hey, bro, how are you? Like, how are mm. you doing? It's been a hell of a year on a multiple fronts, and we're not out of the pandemic yet uh, because we live amongst millions and millions of selfish people who can't, you know, seem to do the right thing. Um, but we're getting there slowly but surely. Um, how are you doing? What's been keeping you? What have, what have been some of the good and the bad things about the pandemic? What's keeping you healthy during this time? How are you? I am grateful. Um, I am tired. I miss people. Um, and I am concerned, you know, all, all at once. Good things from the pandemic. I have really gotten to know a few neighbors and we've helped each other out in some moments or just provided a respite. I remember a neighbor who was really good at composting and I was just getting started with my compost game. And I said, Hey, can, can I get some of your compost to help like start mine? Cause I knew it would have like some of the nutrients and worms and other stuff in it. And he was like, I'll be right there. And he showed up like 10 seconds later and hung around extra long. And it was like, Oh, he's not here for the compost. He's just like, he needed to get out of his house yes. and he loves his family, but he is tired. And I was like, just as eager. I'm like, I love my wife. I love that I'm not totally alone in this, but also I need to hear a different voice. You know, that's just, and the fact that we didn't know each other very well, this neighbor and I was exciting. It's like, what are you into? Oh, something I'm not. That's great. That's so great. Tell me more that I don't know that I haven't already heard. So that, that was a good thing. Um, and, you know, seeing people find ways to step up and help each other out. There's been so much generosity and creativity and um, giving, you know, during this time. And, and folks, with everything that's been coming to more light for more people as far as race, like seeing white people actually 
finally sort of struggle with this is a thing. Yep. That's been really good because it's just, it's a different, there's still many who need to be convinced that it is a thing, but there's, it's a smaller group than before. And that feels like I'm grateful that there's been some benefit to all of this pain. So that's been good. And I've met cool people. You know, I've, I've met some new voices. I, I know a lot more epidemiology than I did a year ago. Like, I know things like r not. you know what I'm saying? Like, rate of spread and uh, efficacy, vaccine efficacy. Like, I feel like I could definitely, like, run a clinical trial at this point in my life. Yeah. And uh, and probably, like, rebuild society if needed. Like, I bought definitely bought enough from Home Depot in the beginning that I could, I could build a new world uh, <laughs> if it came to that. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And uh, I, you know, toilet paper. Like, I really appreciate it. Yes. You know, way more than I, way more than I did before. Those are, those are some of the benefits of COVID. Thank you, pandemic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was just talking to, um, I just released a conversation actually with uh, Craig Robinson, uh, Michelle Obama's brother. Yeah. And we were talking about the, we spent a good chunk of time on how so many people have, you can't unsee the shit that we've been exposed to this year, mm -hmm. right? Both from a, I mean, if you just want to talk purely the disease, the pandemic, right? The 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 ways people have responded and not responded to uh, the calls to action and doing the right thing, uh, to you know the the very public and horrific lynching of George Floyd that the entire world sat in front of, and then decided what they were going to do about it, right? March in the streets, support or you know or take you know take a bunch of other sides. Uh, the the way that the pandemic has disproportionately affected communities of color and people of color. Like, what's that about? You can no longer say, I don't, like, I didn't know that was happening. So I get, yeah. I get a pass. I get an excuse. It's like, no, yeah. you have been exposed to so many more ways that culture, society, the government, we to each other are fucking up. And now we have to decide what we're going to do with it, right? So that's like more, there's there's more work to do than ever before in my mind, which is for those of us that give a damn, like that's a good thing and a bad thing because now we have to decide what we're going to actually do. We can't do everything, right? That's my problem that I have to constantly, hmm. you know, whip myself into shape and remind myself like, yo, you cannot do it all. I know you want to do it all and you think you can do it all, but you cannot do it all. So like chill out and like figure out what you can actually manageably do. So I'm, yeah. I'm, that's like a weird thing to be grateful for because suffering and horrific things have been exposed. But I think the, the gratitude is like, man, who wants to stay in darkness? Who wants to stay ignorant to the shit that's happening around the world? Like, and even not just around the world, within a stone's throw of our homes, right? Like we got to know about that stuff. I mean, I basically agree with that. <laughs> we, do, we do have to know about that stuff. Um, I think there is a significant contingent of people who prefer ignorance, um, who choose that blue pill. And and like that scene in The Matrix, ignorance is bliss. Like that steak tasted really good. You know, and he was happy to like live in the fake world because it was less painful. And I think we also see people choosing to embrace convenient propaganda, lies, myths, um, untruths because there's a there's a benefit to them in choosing that path you know you can choose to believe that the 2020 election was stolen from the former president not because you actually believe it 
but because you just like don't want to deal with the actual truth. And you feel some power in that aggrievement. And it gives you an excuse to do all kinds of undemocratic bullshit, you know, in the name of saving the democracy that you lost a little piece of or that you were not victorious in in this exercise of democracy. So, yeah, there's, there's a significant number of people who are proudly choosing to, to unsee. And, and they, they, they want to m- misinterpret, you know, some of this moment and say, like, oh, what's really happening is, you know, these leftists, uh, they, just, they just hate America and they hate white people and they want white people to hate themselves. And who wants to feel like that? No, I'm proud. And so they swing in the other direction uh, because to, like, actually face the history is real painful and it's real awkward. And it would, it would force one to acknowledge that one has maybe benefited from something that was not of one's own doing. Yeah. And that leans toward that word privilege. I'm not privileged. So that's, that's very much a presence too. That backlash is, is rearing its head. And if, when I look at what this Republican Party is continuing to co-sign on to, it's not all good. You know, we're, we're not all waking up. Some people are taking sleeping pills in a moment of awakening. Yeah. I mean, I live in, uh, <laughs> for one more month, one more long month, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which um, we were talking before you got on like that. Nashville's not so bad in the grand scheme when you look at, you know, what's around, but it's still like literally today, um, in set in legislative session today, they yeah. were, they were trying to pass a bill that would allow Tennesseans to run over protesters. I mean, it's an actual fucking bill. Now it's dead yeah. for at least for the, at least for like, they, they, they shot it down at least for now. That's wait, wait, wait. They shot it down. Or did they have a license to shoot? <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, it's, I'm just playing with you. Oh, that was it. Yes, no, no. Well, that's another bill that just passed. That yeah, I'm you, just saying there's a lot of violence, you, you know, a lot of you don't, you don't, you don't have to have you don't have to have a permit to, to conceal carry here. Like, that's yeah. those are my neighbors. That's what we're dealing with. I did not get yeah. the joke, but you're so you're so right. That is a very appropriate Tennessee joke because that's the shit that like is happening. Meanwhile, we have a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest still not removed from our, you know, from our Capitol building. So it's just, yeah. a, yes, there are, there are people taking sleeping pills. There are people, you know, willfully ignorant. Um, and, you know, again, as a, as a bystander of, you know, the work that you've been putting out and stuff, like I'm grateful for you and so many other black voices that have led well, at least again, from a social media perspective and the different things are coming out that you've, that you've produced and made during this time. I'm so grateful for voices like yours that have been obviously mm. strong, right? Not taking any shit, but also in a very, you know, measured, you know, mature way because there's, you certainly have all the reason in the world to be angry all the time as a black yeah. man in America. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for that. <laughs> but I admire it so much more when that is like pulled back a little bit, reined back. And because yeah. I think, Here's what I've learned from a lot of black leaders over this pandemic is that there is a, which again, y- you all don't owe this to us. You don't owe this to, to the, the rest of America because you've been put through so much shit over the last 400 years, but there is a long game in mind. There is a, hey, I could get upset and angry and try to take everything by storm now, or we can demand change and we can, you know, obviously 
demand progress, but there's a long game in mind, right? Which which I think speaks. Well, you're you're giving you're giving me slash us a lot of credit, and I I'm rarely one to refuse a compliment. <laughs> so thank you. And it is not just um, wisdom and patience and positivity and uh, thoughtfulness that leads to the decision to not be angry all the time. There is uh, internal self-preservation as a mm. part of that calculus. Like anger is consumptive uh, and destructive. And it destroys the one who is angry as much, if not more, as the target of that anger in the long run. And then there's the pragmatic reality that if I showed up as angry and taking things by storm, I, I would be murdered very quickly. Mm. You know, like there, there are certain people in this country who can be angry, uh, who can take buildings by storm. And they did it during the pandemic multiple times. January 6th was like the follow through on the dress rehearsals of the summer of 2020 when folks were like storming state capitals because they wanted haircuts. You know, it's, it's, it's still, I will never forget you know, we there is this briefly, this quickly revised history that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd and the world came together and took to the streets in these great protests. But the protests that happened a few weeks before were large and armed and angry, and they were over bullshit. You know, but but these you look at the anger on these dudes' faces, mostly dudes, mostly white. Yep, and they're just like my freedom. I need to go to 24-hour fitness. And I will take a gun to the state capitol for my right to, like, sweat indoors. Are you really? That's literally the hill you're going to kill on. Mm. And so, like, the January 6th thing was predicted in April 2020. When these dudes were plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan... Because they couldn't get fucking haircuts. God help us. You know, I, I let my wife cut my hair. That's how I dealt with that. It never occurred to me to like grab an AR-15 and go spit COVID into the face of a state trooper. I'd be dead. Yes. I'd be fucking dead. And, and so I, I have, I'm impatient, but I'm also not an idiot. And I have seen who this society allows to be angry. We don't let women get angry. A woman is angry for a minute. She's a bitch. She's, you write her off. But a guy is angry. He's strong. Black person's angry. They're ungrateful. A white person's angry. They're, oh, they're, they're a leader. And there's just, there's very few examples that are so clear as motherfuckers going <laughs> with guns mm. to violently demand that they pay another person to cut their hair indoors. You're not willing to sacrifice nothing for nobody, but you are willing to kill for that? Oh, we're, we're definitely not on the same page. So when you see Black people being patient, it's because we know <laughs> that we get killed when we merely demand to not be murdered in broad daylight by people sworn to protect and serve us. That we just beg to not be run down by a car for exercising the documented right of assembly. 
There's no documented right to a haircut. It, supercuts is not even in the Constitution. I have definitely checked. So, yeah, we have a double standard that is very real to be understated about it. So wild. So wild. So many things, so many <laughs> yeah. things we could talk about from this past year. But here's what I want to do, because I want to get to the way I want to take this conversation is I want to end up, you know, in the the third act of our conversation. I want to talk about yeah. all that you're doing, which is, you know, tremendous work. And I want to, you know, share it with the Let's Give a Damn family. But on the way there, let's hear more and probably more of these topics that we've already talked about will come up. But like, let's talk about your journey um, mm. as as Baratunde, as Baratunde. Uh, born in Washington, D.C., correct? That's right. Tell me. A original Washingtonian. Yeah, you are. May it, be, uh, may it become a state. Yeah, hopefully. God, hopefully. I mean, let, let's talk about that for one second. Let's combine the Carolinas, the Dakotas. Uh, let's get rid of, I think we could safely just like get rid of uh, Alaska and Hawaii. It makes no sense that they're part of this country. Uh, let's bring in uh, Puerto Rico and dc and um and let's finally just let texas and florida leave because they really want to and i think we end up with like 47 states right we actually we gained some but we actually you know go, go down in numbers so i think that works out for everybody there there is i mean i will I, I am not trying to get rid of hawaii i like a united states where hawaii access does not require a passport i've been there Twice in my life, I would like to return without an excess of paperwork. Fair enough. So if they want to stay a part of us, I say let them stay. I'm with you, though, on the, the secessionist talkers. You know, they, it's really like when sometimes I feel gracious and optimistic and positive and generous. And other times I'm petty as hell. <laughs> and I'm just like, OK, so all these dudes who are just like, this is not my America, this is not the place of the country, then take your own advice. You know, if you don't love this country, leave it. You've been telling black and brown people that for a long time. There's people who are dying literally to get into this country. They want to come here and pay taxes. They're eager to. They want to come here and have babies and reproduce and grow the population so we can have a, a reasonable structure of a social pyramid that can fund social security. And you're up here whining? So go, like call, I'm going to call your bluff, homie, raise up out of here. How you doing? And then we, we, you know, you do your Brexit thing and we negotiate some new terms of engagement. And I'm pretty sure most of these fools are not ready to do that. And they'd be worse off without us, but they're not willing to say that. So they, you know, they have this other claim that, well, this is just theirs just because it's like very immature. Well, because. Because what? Because you're white, right? Just, they won't say that. Most of them, some of them are increasingly able to say it and willing to. But yeah, I think if you, just the people who actually want to be American, let us let us be America. The people who are like having all these doubts and I don't know, be out. It's cool. Also, there's like no one who, like so many of these states, it's just land and cows, you know, and buffalo and stuff. Like, there's nothing, it's, it all falls apart if you start measuring, like, will of the people or will of the cattle, right? Like, <laughs> why did there, there's the representation in the Senate of livestock is, is out of control, yep. is out of hand. <laughs> and so if we really want to talk about, like, people representation, then, you know, that's a different kind of math. Now, 
again, that's not my normal frame of mind. But when I'm feeling particularly aggrieved and impatient and petty, I will invite people to take their own advice and, and, and just walk away. I like I like uh, petty baritone. Petty is fun petty, sometimes. Petty it's is very fun. human. Petty is fun. I acknowledge it is not it is not my most elevated self, but it's it, it, it's real. And we need yeah. some petty just to like get by, right? As long as the kind of mature, <laughs> you know responses outweigh the pettiness i think some pettiness yes. is some pettiness on is net i am not petty but go. i reserve the right to have moments of pettiness and you deserve those okay so washington dc <laughs> tell me about your family your folks what did they do what was sort of the upbringing what was what, what did it feel like in your upbringing uh it felt good for the most part i was raised by my mother and uh, lived with her and my older sister belinda she's nine years older lives in michigan now um my father was not around much and then was not around at all because he was killed. And so mm. his absence was a significant event, obviously, in my childhood. But I didn't fully understand at the time what it all meant. And my mother stepped up so much that I, did, I wasn't conscious of like a big hole in my life. I had clothes, I had food, I had friends, I had a, a home, I, I had love in the house, and uh, and I clearly turned out pretty okay. So it, it is, it's been significant, and I still, I'm starting to like think about it more, but it didn't derail, you know, my whole development as a person, uh, but it certainly defined my development as a person. So what family was, was like me, my mom, my sister, and our pets living on Newton Street in Mount Pleasant. And, you know, neighbors kind of up in your business a little bit, but in like a loving way. And uh, a lot of trust. You know, we played, I mean, playing in the streets, riding our bikes, going to Rock Creek Park. Um, D.C. is a great place to grow up for access to resources that don't require a ton of money. You have all the national museums there. They were free. I think they might still be. I'm not entirely sure, but go I remember going to the Air and Space Museum and the National Zoo, and seeing the pandas. and It was just a, a normal thing that we did. And we didn't have to fly or get on a long bus trip. We just go downtown. Um, I was in the Easter egg hunt at the White House under President Reagan. I was in the inauguration of George H.W. Uh, Bush because I was a Boy Scout. And I remember we like stood century along the parade route. And I was like, this is cool. This is a cool place to grow up. And it got more heated over time because of crime, because of drugs, because of police. And I remember as a child feeling like, oh, I, my neighborhood is not as safe anymore. I can't just sit out on the stoop the way I used to. My mom wants me to come in the house. And I remember her going and joining the church across the street for peace vigils and candlelight vigils and stop the violence, you know, mini marches and community meetings and that was starting to occupy like a lot of times. So I remember my mother's stress. And I remember as a kid, not really appreciating it. I was like, I just want to go outside and play. And I'm getting a, a longer and longer list of things I can't do. And then we had to move. And that's dramatic because then you're like uprooted from everything familiar. And we moved out of D.C. to Tacoma Park, Maryland, which I think is just all Silver Spring now. They kind of re- designated some stuff but it's right across the dc border and 
that I, that felt more isolating. I remember going to a private school instead of the public school because the public school was hella violent. And my mom was like, no, you're not, no, no. And so that, I mean, it all affected my life a lot. And where I lived, who I was educated with, like how I got, to, how long it took me to get to school each day. It was like an hour each way. A couple of buses and a train and a walk. I mean, I sound, I sound like a grandparent, you know, like I had right. to, it, it took me five transfers and I used burned through six pair of shoes uphill both ways just to get my education. But it was kind of like that. That was a long, long route to get to school. Um, but I remember mostly enjoying, you know, I, I have, I remember when I started to meet other people and they, not, not that I was like living in a bubble, but when I, I met people not from my circumstance. And as I got older and became an adult, they listened to my childhood and they were like, how, how did you make it out of there? Mm. Like they, they made it sound like I grew up in a war zone or something. And they had seen headlines about DC was the murder capital. Yeah, I guess. I, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I grew up in the murder capital. You know, like, but it's just where you grew up too. And I, there was no Instagram. There was like the Cosby show. But there wasn't a ton of exposure to what else childhood could have been like. Right. And then I was pretty proud. Like, I liked being from D.C. I liked being Black. I liked being kind of independent. Like, I knew how to take care of myself. And I would definitely meet kids who, like, didn't know how to wash their own clothes. And I'm like, so which one of us had the weak childhood? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Like, um, so, I, yeah, there's a lot of gratitude for how I was raised and for who raised me. And a strong sense of community that I grew up with and belonging that I, I don't feel as strongly today. You know, I've moved a lot in my adult life, so I'm not as tethered to a specific region. Uh, I'm busy. <laughs> and the neighborhoods that I have lived in since used to be like the one I grew up in. But there are all these like migratory patterns of money populated by a few people. And everybody works so hard, so there's not as much time to get to know folks. Like, the lack of block parties. I grew up with block parties and all this kind of community stuff. And that's just, it feels more fleeting nowadays. So, I like, I like the way I came into this world. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fascinating. And I, I resonate so deeply with the, the, a few minutes ago, you were talking about how people would look in and say, you know, kind of make a spectacle of growing up in the yeah. murder capital. I grew up in Guatemala. <laughs> And so we grew up right at the tail end of a 30-something year civil war. And yeah. so there was, I mean, insane amounts of violence. There were kidnap, like there was a kidnapping attempt on me. I saw people get murdered right in front of me. I got caught in the middle wow. of a gunfight. Like all these things were happening, but it felt so normal. It was, yeah. it was our existence. It was our life. And we're in the middle of this, this very metropolitan hustle and bustle city in this really beautiful country, beautiful people, but very, you know, tons and tons of violence. And I never, people would they would get onto my parents, right? Again, I was 12 kids. They had the last three there. So they came with, arrived with eight or nine and then had three more there. And they thought they were insane. Like, what the fuck are you doing taking, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 kids to this third world country? And for us, it was like, it was kind of great. Like, it was super fun. Like, we live in this amazing <laughs> country and the people and the food and everything. So I, I, I deeply resonate with that little bit that you were talking yeah. about. It, because you lost your dad, and, and I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, because you lost your dad so so early on, were there any other 
kind of mentor father figures in your life that helped you? Or was it mainly, you know, your mother, your sister, your family? There was a, a whole community of dudes. Um, you know, my mom was very close to uh, a friend of our family, James, James West, who I'm still in touch with. And he had a massive influence on me. He was a photographer. He was a bass player, a cello player. And he exposed me to all those things. And he just, he's like a positive, fun energy. Uh, there was this guy my mom was dating for a while. This good dude, Nathan. Real gentle spirit, gentle soul. Um, really remember appreciating him. There were the, the these brothers. I don't remember where they were from, but there were these Latin brothers, Pepe and Pinky. And they owned a bike shop called Brothers and Bicycles. And one of them played bass too. Like I, I grew up playing bass. I was in the DC Youth Orchestra program. But I remember going to Pepe's place for lessons. And when I needed to get a bike, like they cut my mom a deal. We really didn't have a lot, but we all knew each other. So it was not just a transaction. It was like a community investment. <laughs> to like get, get this little dude a bike. And also my mom made me sign a contract. She literally... My mom was such a weird, intense woman, man. Like, she was really concerned about me letting someone else ride my bike. And she's like, this is your bike. You will not let anybody else ride this bike. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. And then she's like, no, seriously. So I remember, like, I don't remember the day of the week. I remember it was like late afternoon around 4 p.m. We're at Brothers and Bicycles. We're standing at the counter. I'm about to get my first BMX bike this relatively light, you know, for the time bike was probably made of iron or something in hindsight. And it had a cool paint job where it looked cracked all over. I'm like, yeah, this bike has been through stuff, but it was just a cool paint design. But before I could take possession of the bike, my mother had handwritten a contract. Amazing. That I would not let anyone else ride this bike. She made me sign it. And she made Pepe sign it as a witness. And she signed it. She was for real. She was like... No jokes. I was like, this woman is rather intense. Definitely no other mom that I knew. They might say to their kids something like, don't let somebody else ride your bike. And then you just, the kid's going to do what they're going to do. And my mom thought like this piece of paper was like an enforceable thing. <laughs> and she, she involved other people too. So now our business is out in the street. It was it was crazy. It was really crazy. Did you ever um, did you ever share it with anybody or did you keep to that contract? Uh I'm pretty sure it worked. Uh I'm pretty sure she, I kept it a contract. She sufficiently scared the shit out of you and you were like, no. Yeah, because I'm like, what is she gonna sue me? Like what what is what does it mean to breach? Like I'm not I was probably nine, you know, like as a nine-year-old, I didn't sign a lot of documents. Yeah. You're like, I can't be homeless over this bike. Yeah, and I'm like, what? And I also had memories. In my mom, she set a really strict and strong example. She, my older sister, I remember her working at B. Dalton Bookstore um, and working at KFC. Perks, both. You get discount on books and discounts on chicken. Like, what else do you need? And, but I remember my mom essentially, uh, she charged my sister rent. You know, like she like garnished some of her wages. Just she's like, I need a percentage. <laughs> and my sister's like, this wow. is my money. Like, I work for this. And my mom was like, this is my house. And you're now that you're earning, you can contribute to us living here. And I, I witnessed that conversation when I was probably eight-ish years old. Because my sister would have been 
in high school around 16 when I, so I was like, yo, my mom is like not joking. Like she will take your money, write out your piggy bank, you know what I mean? And call it like, you know, contributing to the family. It's very gangster shit. <laughs> but you got to survive, right? So she's like trying. Absolutely. And she was teaching us something. Yeah. She was teaching us something. She was also like relatively alone herself and like surviving all kinds of traumas. And so she showed up so intensely in a way that I didn't really understand the origins of that. I just thought like my mom is different from these other moms. Uh, and I'm not going to test her too much. Yeah, that's for sure. So you end up at, <laughs> you end up at Harvard University. I do. I and do. what did you study there? And uh, then I want to like, I want to figure out the pivot from Harvard. Not that it's not that it doesn't follow, but just what was the pivot from like your Harvard education to, you know, working at the Onion and the Daily Show and all that. So what did you study? at yeah. Harvard? What was your experience at Harvard? Like as a as a black kid from D.C.? It was dope. <laughs> I'm I sure. really, really, I really loved Harvard, man. Um and you will not find every black alumni saying sure. such things. But I had the benefit of a preview for six years in, in D.C., my last six years as a child. I attended the Sidwell Friends School right. in Washington, D.C. And I was uh, a private school, a pretty elite private school, small population, high tuition, well-resourced. And, you know, the Clintons sent their daughter, Chelsea, there and other members of the administration, and obviously later the Obamas sent both their daughters there. So it's, it's one of these highfalutin institutions. And that was training ground. Um, and I went through a lot of learning and adjustment and awkwardness and pain. And I came out of that pretty strong. And, uh, and so Harvard wasn't the intimidating slap in the face it almost certainly would have been if I had stayed in my earlier version of D.C., you know, the Newton Street version of D.C. that's almost all black and brown, that's public school, that's lovely and joyful and community-driven, but is not what a place like Harvard feels like. So I had this transition, and six years is a good amount of time to adjust. So I got to Harvard, and I was like, oh, this is, I got this, pretty much. You know, there were definitely some moments of academic struggle, but not a ton. <laughs> and that's because Sidwell just whooped my butt. That's where I got my butt whooped, and I had time to, to catch up to that level of rigor. So I got to be myself at Harvard. I got to try things and play and explore, which, which means I, so I was, in, I did the newspaper, the Harvard Crimson. Nice. It's a daily newspaper. It's pretty close to an actual newspaper, you know, in terms of the robustness, the alumni from that institution have gone on to run and be editors at and Pulitzer Prize winning journalists all over this country. And I was a part of that for like three and a half years. And I was an executive editor there and I had responsibilities and whatnot. That was dope, you know? And then I was also a part of the, the Harvard Computer Society. And I'm getting access to, this is the 90s, you know, on the internet very early and playing around with stuff. And I led the writing of a whole book about computing at Harvard. I was the editor of that. And I worked jobs because I had to pay for this thing. It's not cheap. So I worked in the computer lab, fixing people's computers, saving their printers, saving their papers and getting eaten, you know, by printers yeah. and viruses and all that kind of stuff. And I was a part of the black community at Harvard, the Black Men's Forum and the Black Students Association. So I, I just got to be a part of many worlds and stretch, stretch my wings and do theatrical productions. I took some classes too, you know, while I was there. <laughs> good, which good. Is, which is great. It was great. I did, I learned stuff. I studied philosophy. 
uh, because a high school teacher thought I might be into it. And she was absolutely right. In fact, uh, it was my high school English teacher, Erica Berry, who I, I mentioned in my TED Talk. Um, which with this TED talk where I diagram a bunch of sentences and I was like, oh, my high school English teacher would be very appreciative of this moment. And then she also planted the seed of studying philosophy. So I, one of the first classes I took, philosophy three, intro to philosophy, Anthony Appiah. And I loved it. And so I rocked with that for years. It was, you know, there was, again, awkwardness, pain, failure. Sure. Like I had no romantic relationships. You know, finances were not great. Uh, it's cold. It, not just temperature-wise, but like personality-wise in New England, that's that's not great. Uh, and a place like Harvard, with being black there, it's, it's, it's being black in America. You know, it's it's there's a history of exclusion and what paintings are on the wall, and somebody's gonna put a swastika on the wall or write the N word wow. on the wall. So it's it's kind of like the same story. Um, but by the time I got there. It wasn't a shocking story. And so it, I don't think it knocked me off my game as much as it might have if I hadn't been raised in the house I was raised in to already be primed to, to see that this stuff was part of America, to be primed to already love myself with my pseudo-Nigerian name um, and this, this political mom, and, and to have that Sidwell time to adapt you know, to these different types of, to that type of institution. I have a love-hate relationship with uh, university, uh, mostly because, like, it, it mostly just feels like overpriced, like, shit show, you know, where, <laughs> you know, most yeah. of my friends are not using anything. They're not in the career that they went to school for, and they're still, you know, in their, they're in their mid-late 30s and still deeply in debt from school, right? And so yeah. I hate that part about college and how we've made it this like god like you have to go i mean it's loosening up now where places like google and apple don't require a degree you know as long as you can do the shit like we don't need you to have a degree but for decades and you know longer it's been you have to have a degree you know we need you to have a master's degree to make 17 dollars an hour for x job and that's just like ridiculous but I, i'm also so i hate it on the one hand but i'm equally fascinated at the your experience and the experience that many people have told me where it's so it's so life-shaping and the things you get to do in that environment it's your first maybe i didn't need it as much because i my parents like growing up in a foreign country they let me start going off on trips by myself with like complete strangers to other countries when i was a teenager they were very like go off and like find your way so i had already had experiences it wasn't like i was going from this very protective environment to you know school but i I quit school. I went to Bible college and uh, I, I quit school two years in or a year and a half in. I was doing well academically, but I was like, I feel I'm paying you lots of money to not teach me anything that I couldn't learn. Like I was already like yeah. a voracious like reader and I love to study and I love to research. And so I was like, I'm not going to keep paying you and I could just buy the books and go home and do it myself. Right. But yeah. I sometimes every once in a while I miss school and I'm like, man, I wish I could like Maybe someday I will go back for something. I don't know that I need it at this point, but maybe I do. So I'm I'm glad your experience was, you know, positive, it seems, for you know, for the most part. It was positive for the most part. I mean, I I think I was in I was lucky to go to college before social media. Mm, sure. I just I I was very fortunate that I was born in 1977. I didn't choose it. Maybe my soul chose it, but 
I, I came up in, in that era and I don't know how I would have handled those additional pressures and that, that additional screen in my life. I was already really addicted to the internet when it was slow and it had no pictures. So I don't know what I would do with HD, you know, internet and, and true broadband. And um, I think, you know, what's happened in the past 20 plus years is the experience I had has become even more expensive, yeah, more um, debt-laden or, or less accessible in general. And I think, you know, what I did shouldn't be for everybody. Like, it shouldn't be a requirement to do all that. And I was lucky that I got myself out of the debt hole. I, you know, I worked a lot during college. I had a lot of financial aid. And I left with still a lot of debt. And I hustled to pay that yeah. off. And I didn't have, I, I was lucky that I didn't want to go to grad school, you know, which would, like if I'd gone to law school or gone to medical school, that's, 200, I have friends more, who yeah. did that. And you're boxed into these career choices by that dead hole, you know? And so then you got to go work for some institution that doesn't excite you, doesn't bring out the best in you, but brings out the money so that you can kind of be free. So it's like it's like debtor's prison for your dreams for some people. Um, and for some, they don't even recognize that it is, which is a little sadder still. So, yeah, I, I think there's a, a college has become this very privileged experience. And some of what it can offer should be more broadly available. The ability to like explore yourself and engage in activities and have a level of security around experimentation. Uh, to have a level of resource and access to that resource. Like, it shouldn't cost that much to learn. It shouldn't cost that much to uh, collaborate with other people around things you might enjoy, right? Like a newspaper. We should have a society that lets kids make media together, <laughs> you know, um, and not have to work four jobs just to help out, you know, paying their family's rent. And so there's a larger economic failure and a larger creative failure um, of our society when that kind of experience is reserved for people who have the most resources yep. or people willing to sacrifice so much for a shot. Yeah. At. Yeah. I mean, like most things in life, university is nuanced, right? Um, yeah. your career, uh, is very fascinating to me because, uh, you're, you're, you're much more uh, famous than I am, but it's, it's been, it's been sort of a, uh, I, I think there's parallels in that we've, it seems like over the last period you've done a variety of different things, things that have looked, you know, very different from each other. And each opportunity sort of built on the next one to give you more and more opportunities. And I love that. You, you've you worked for The Onion. You produced on The Daily Show. Um, you have written for, you know, some of the biggest, uh, you know, publications out there. Uh, your book from 2012, I think it was, How to Be Black. Uh, just, a, yeah. just a fascinating, funny uh, memoir. Talk to me about how you see your career. And obviously you're, you're still, you know, super young and vibrant and you have a long, you know, career ahead of you, I hope. So like, how, how have you seen it sort of evolve and uh, kind of what's next? And we'll talk about, you know, some of the things that you're currently doing, your podcast and stuff like that. Uh, but how have you seen your career, your fascinating career, you know, sort of evolve to where it is now? In the beginning, I was just trying to pay for college. <laughs> you know, sure. Like I, I, I have worked um, the majority of my life. And when I was in um, middle school, 
or was it high school? Probably safer to say high school, but I started working. I had little entrepreneurial ventures. I, I did work for my mom's friends. I did the lawn mowing thing or the pick, you know, clearing people's backyards and stuff like that ad hoc. But my first consistent job was as a high school student. I worked at the Washington Post as in a job that's known as the copy aide, where you're like this internal gopher. And I answered phones and delivered internal memos and ran off copies of things and sorted mail and delivered mail on a little basket inside the building. And I got to interact with like award-winning reporters three seconds at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and that felt really cool. I'm being from DC and knowing the history of that institution. And I'm just a high school kid. But I, but I was like, it was such a job. Like I was in the union. Like I got a real pay stub. It wasn't like a, a high school program. I was just a kid working, you know, at night after, after Sidwell. Um, so I've worked a long time and I've you know, first job kind of in media uh, in terms of any kind of benefits associated with it. Worked through college with computers uh, and worked after college to pay for that college experience uh, working in, in consulting around technology and business and telecom you know, innovation, broadly speaking. So the evolution from college to like get into work somewhere as small and cool as The Onion or The Daily Show is uh, necessity, you know, started some of those first steps. Other people believing in me pushed me. Uh, I think, you know, if my, my, I was married before, so my first wife, was a musician. We went to Harvard together. She was a few years younger. And as I was starting to get sucked into the corporate job that I took to pay for the cool college experience I spent a lot of time telling you about, <laughs> she was uh, lovingly insistent that I might not be doing what I'm meant to do. Mm. And she had credibility because she was doing what she felt she was meant to do. She was playing music. And she was playing in the streets for people throwing pennies in her guitar case. And she was like, what are you doing? You know, in many more words with a lot more compassion to that. But basically it was like, dude, what are you doing with your life? And I was like, dude, I'm paying for a college. Yeah, okay, but what besides that? And that was the, that lit a fire and reminded me I have a lot of creativity mm. that I need to get out. And so I started, I restarted a creative life that I'd also been exploring in college and even in high school to some degree, which is writing for fun, for me, not just for the student newspaper, but like writing jokes, writing satirical news coverage, um, writing things that had to do with politics. And I started writing again. This is 2001, 2002. And, so you, and you also had 9-11, which is like this obviously massive and shocking event and things like that make a lot of people question, what am I doing with my time on this planet with this life? It's not assured. So make the most of it. And so I, st I started studying creative arts again. I took a stand-up comedy class. I took a comedy writing class and I took all the hustle that I had inside of me, the hustle that got me through DC, the hustle that got me through Sidwell, that got me through Harvard, that got me through the murder capital without feeling like I was at risk of being murdered constantly. And I poured it in to this new outlet that was really an old mm. outlet, this creative outlet. And I gave a lot to my day job, but I reserved some for me. 
And I slept very little for years as I lived these two lives. And that helped me push through and find a way to like do creative stuff and make some money, you know, get some health care and, and not just have it be this random thing that was kind of undirected. And when I get focused on something, like when I want something, Nick, I will pursue mm. it. You know, like I, I wanted to figure out composting. I bought a book on composting. I started looking at YouTube videos on composting. I talked to my neighbor about composting. I am like very good at composting now. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to say I'm the king of composting, but I'm pretty good. And kids in the neighborhood know. They keep some scraps for Baratunde. <laughs> and it. so like, could I apply that to creativity, to writing? Um, and to channeling my political messages, which have always been there because my mother was my mother and, and she helped plant slash unlock some of that in me. How could I find a voice for that that also helped me live? And so The Onion was like, nothing is a foregone conclusion, but it made sense that it happened the way it did because I had just been in the gym. You know, I had been busting my ass at garbage open mics for years, writing these satirical news emails that handfuls of people were sort of reading for years, self-publishing multiple books, yeah. you know, for years. And then commuting to New York to try to get on stage, to try to learn from a workshop. So I was ready, you know, almost like being, you know, that I felt kind of ready for Harvard because of those six years at Zidwell when the Onion opportunity presented itself, which was in 2012. I'm sorry, 2007. Six years after, I got this kick in the butt from, from my girlfriend at the time. Six years after the 9-11 moment, I, I didn't wake up and say, oh, there's a job at the Onion. How could I get that? A friend was like, there's a job at the Onion that's meant for you. You need to get that. Because they knew too, because I also hadn't been quiet about what I was up to. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people believing in me when I was not quite ready to be believed in, certainly didn't have external proof, but they saw something. I, I'm grateful to, to Mika, that was my first wife, I'm guessing to Justin Krebs, who as we're recording is running for like City Council of New York. He roped me in and he was the one that told me about the Onion job. Uh, all kinds of folks. It's definitely not just, I mean, I work hard. For sure, I, I, but that's that's rarely enough. No, totally. So, so that's what I, I'm. I'm glad you went. You took it the direction you did because obviously, it's obvious you worked your ass off for decades to get to the place where you are. But there's always some other elements like people pushing us. We need a community to push us, right? The people that listen to this podcast, they want to make a difference in the world. They want to start things. They want to. They kind of want to fuck shit up, right? In society and culture, and they want to. They want to make changes. Yeah, because they give. A they damn. give a damn, but it doesn't yeah. happen. In, in this kind of dreamy, uh, you know, fantasy kind of way where it's like, oh, I have a great idea and this is going to work. No, like it takes a long fucking time to make these things work. And it takes people pushing us, it takes people saying, hey, there's this job that you should take. You've been, you don't know that you've been working toward this, but you've been working toward this. And it takes, yeah. you know, loved ones and mentors and people around us saying, okay, these first three books or whatever, you know, not many people read them. But like, but this is the book that needs to come out and not, you know, and then boom, a New York Times bestseller. And it just, it's, it's an incremental, I, I see this incremental building, but I'm sure what I want to also point out is there were probably lots of 
times along the way where you may have said, well, this isn't going to work, or maybe I should just give up and go back to that corporate thing. I don't know. A lot of people do where it's like, well, it hasn't hit yet, so maybe it's not going to hit ever. And I'm always encouraging people, like, don't fucking give up. Like, if this is something, <laughs> if you feel this fire in your bones, if this is something that you think God or whatever higher power you believe in put you on earth to do, like, keep pushing. Because A, the universe doesn't owe you anything, but it will require you continuing to push, continuing to move forward, because you don't know, like, if if it's hurdle number 20 that's going to be your, your, your kind of jumping off point, or hurdle yeah. 45, or hurdle 120. You just don't know those things. We're not privy to that information, so we got to keep pushing. We got to keep hustling, right? I definitely have... Um, I've lived with an unreasonable set of beliefs in myself. Like a reasonable set of behaviors would have had me change course at many other points mm. and just, dude, it's not working. Stop. Get, just get the job. Just get the health care. Just get something more secure and more stable. And the reasons that I didn't do that are... Um, self-delusion, it's very powerful. It's very useful. Sometimes pays off. You know, you believe something about yourself until it's yep. true, before it's true. Um, and sometimes it never comes true. Like, it's not a guarantee. There are, there are no guarantees. Death is guaranteed. For now, right? But that, otherwise, the, everything else is up for grabs. So I definitely, I, I believed in myself. I think I was very fortunate to feel relatively free in a world that doesn't encourage me to feel that way. And I just, I, I grew up loved. You know, I grew up housed and clothed. I grew up encouraged to explore what I was into. Like, I didn't grow up in a household where my mother's like, you're going to do this. And if you don't do this, you're not my child. You know, there's there's people who live that story. And so if, if presented with an opportunity to step out on their own and define themselves, it could be terrifying because no one ever told them that they could do that. I was told from a very early age, you can be anything. You can do anything. I think I believed my mom, you know, for, for better ultimately, but sometimes for worse. Um, so that, that helped. I got lucky. You know, there, I cannot... There's like an alternate version of my life where I end up in jail. There's an alternate version of my life where I'm struck by a stray bullet and don't make it. There's an alternate version of my life where uh, I miss the email. I just, I miss the email and I don't get that job at the onion which unlocked so many other levels. Like if I look at my life as a video game, like that was a key level up. And I could see so much more of the map when I got through that door. But without it, I'm not saying I wouldn't be Baratunde. I would always be Baratunde. But I might be a very different yeah. version. You know, maybe end up working at an advertising agency. Right? That's very plausible, very still storytelling, still digital. Uses a lot of the things. But I might not, my efforts and my labor may have been loaned out for much longer to somebody else's name rather than doing it in my own mm. name and, and, and risking my own reputation in the process. So all that uh, is, is part of it. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. I probably shouldn't. But I, it's, I, 
it is not as simple as just just pursue your passion, yeah, man. Yeah, right. Like, just follow your dreams. I was lucky, you know? I was so lucky. And I was, it was timed well. And, and I worked hard, right? It's all those things. Um, and I had people put, even that, the, the How to Be Black book, like my friend Maui, refugee from Eritrea, Ethiopia, met him at Harvard. This dude had credibility. He wrote a book. He wrote a memoir when he was like 18 years old. Like, what do you, or 21 years old. What do you, you're 21, you're writing a memoir. You think you're Frederick Douglass? What are you, what are you doing here? And, but then when he saw my scribblings, my little email newsletter, my newsflash newsletter, my self-published, printed at Kinko's, stapled at home books in very heavy quotation marks, I remember him saying, he's like, he's like, you know what you do? You like, you mock the world. And the world needs mocking. You need to write a mm. book. You really need to write a book. And I, I wasn't going to do it. Maui was like, you need to write a book. And then Harper Collins comes along some years later, like, you need to write a book. I'm like, well, Maui said it, now Harper says it. That's two data points. I'm going to say that's a pattern. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go forth with this. I became friends with Anand Girdardas years back, a writer, speaker, He's amazing. agitator, amazing. rabble agitator, Yes. And I remember, <laughs> my life is nuts, Nick. I met Anand and, and his now wife, Priya, in Paris on a beautiful Parisian evening at some event, around on the balcony, looking at the Eiffel Tower, drinking champagne. That was how we met. It was crazy, Wild. beautiful, and auspicious. But where we got to know each other, walking around Paris, talking on that trip, realizing we both went to the same high school. And then on a subsequent trip to the Republic of Georgia, you know, in, in Central Eastern Europe, and him breaking down the business model of public speaking. And he's like, you really crush it as a speaker. You're very good at this. Here's how it works for me. And I was like, oh, that, again, unlocking levels, which helped make my whole life sustainable financially. Because just dreams, they do not pay for nope. stuff. <laughs> not on their own. So I've had these um, mentors and peers and angels, and then there's probably people I don't even know who've put in a word, endorsed me, made an introduction or recommendation. So I, you know, I thank all those folks. Yeah, too. amazing. I mean, life is a community effort, right? I love, I love all of those yeah. those uh, kind of pieces that you just put together for us. I know we're coming up on our time, and I want to be respectful today. Hopefully, maybe someday we can do a, a round two because I have so much more to talk with you about. But, <laughs> but I, but I, let's talk. Let's spend the last bit of our time on your podcast. I want to send every let's give a damn listener over to How to Citizen with Baratunde Day podcast. Tell me, I mean, it's I've listened to a few episodes. You're you're great at it. You're a great question asker. You're a great listener. Talk to me uh, about how to citizen. How did it come about when people head over there, as I hope they will, and I'll, I'll do my best to push them over there. <laughs> Thanks, what's Nick. it about? What can they expect and how can they get involved in that effort? Because it's it's just, it's fantastic. And it was named, you know, one of Apple's favorite podcasts, 2020. No big deal. Mine hasn't been named anything like that. So you, you've got a leg <laughs> up there on me. But uh, talk about the podcast. This is, uh, I'm very proud of this podcast. Mm. There, there are certain things that I've helped create where I'm just like, you did it. You did the damn thing. How to be black is one of those projects where I feel like I put it all out there. It's on the page. I gave more of myself than I expected. And it's still connecting, still resonating. The TED Talk in 2019 I did, Deconstructing Racism, one headline at a time. 
similar vibe. I'm like, oh, that was that was a high watermark. Most of my tweets, not so much, not so much at all. But those two pieces of work, I would I would be proud at the end of my life and know that those are some of the best things that I helped uh, give birth to. How the citizen is is up there, um, and is the current thing at the top of the list of my priorities creatively and socially. I was. Um, I knew I had something in me to channel all this stuff that I have felt compelled to participate in. I have felt compelled to join marches and sign petitions. I have felt compelled to believe in this damn country, even when it doesn't believe in me. I have felt compelled to fight for racial justice. I felt compelled to use my voice and my comedy to talk about these things in ways that might invite a few more people to the table in ways that shame and facts don't. They just don't. It can be very righteous and very correct and not change a single mind. Right. <laughs> and so between being effective and being right, there's sometimes a choice. There's certainly a balance. And I'd been struggling to give birth to the show in many forms for many, many years. I mean, I made TV pilots. I pitched things. I wrote treatments. I did other podcasting efforts. And it finally emerged in uh, the summer of 2020, How to Citizen with Baratunde as a podcast. A uh, lot of credit goes to my wife, Elizabeth. She was like the partner I needed at the time I needed to help get this thing out the door. And we have built this show where citizen is a verb. That's, that's like the simplest sales pitch. And if you just Sit with that and say that to yourself. Citizen as a verb. This dude, when he went to Harvard, thinks he can just change grammar. Like citizen is definitely a noun. But we're we're people and we can change yes, we things. We can. You know, we can change laws, we can change rules, we can change the meanings of words. So let's recreate this word, citizen, to imply a level of action. What do we do? Who's doing things? And I am impatient with merely understanding that the world can be an unjust and unforgiving place, an unfair and unwelcoming place. I know that. I live that. My family's lived that. I could, I could run off a list of infinite stories. Also, we can do stuff. <laughs> you know, and, and I think especially during the last presidency, the, 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 that's where the word doom scrolling emerged. Every, every bit of news was an assault on our belief in ourselves. Mm. And it became addictive to lose faith. Well, obviously, Stephen Miller uh, wants to sacrifice babies at the border. That's just what he does, the Santa Monica fascist. You know, obviously, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, Bill Barr, yeah, it makes perfect sense. In the Supreme Court, of course, Trump's going to get three people in a... And, and there's something really destructive and addictive um, and self-reinforcing about believing that things will get worse and that we just have to sit and witness mm. it. And the best we could do is document our doom. That is not me. I just, it, it lights me up. It's, it's indulgent. It's self-indulgent. It is disrespectful to the people that brought us here, across borders, across time, across firing lines. I would not be here if a bunch of people hadn't put themselves in front of a knife or a gun 
or some form of abuse for me to be there. And if they had had that attitude, all I can do is just witness the destruction and the dimmed, none of us would be here. So it pisses me off and it inspires me because I knew there was like another type of story that we could tell. And because of the weird journey my life has taken with comedians and writers and activists and technologists, my Rolodex is dope. Right? I just like personally knew too many people doing more than bearing witness to our destruction, but engaged in an act of reconstruction of something better. Citizening, turning this thing into a verb, showing up, participating, building with other people, knowing their power in deep ways that went well beyond the voting thing. Voting so important, but so not enough. Necessary, but insufficient. One of the first things I ever learned in philosophy is necessary, but not sufficient. I felt real smart <laughs> as like an 18-year-old learning to use words in that way. And But now I feel it. Yeah, voting is necessary and totally insufficient, especially if your votes are not counted because you have an electoral college, which gives cows more votes than people. That's what the show, that's the spirit of the show. I probably couldn't be any clearer about what has inspired it and where we're going for, what we're going for. And we're in the second season now. First season was a scattershot approach. Just grab, grab people from, from the email contact list, throw them in a chair on Zoom. Let's talk about what you're doing. And always giving the audience something they could do to, to citizen. The second season, yo, like we are making a case for something in the second season. And it's all about money and economics. And how the system that we live in economically makes it very hard to do all these things I believe we have to do to self-govern. That's the whole. Otherwise, we could just outsource, just give all our power to a dictator, let them tell us what to do. Many people have chosen that path throughout history and today. And it's always available. Always. But if we're going to govern ourselves, then we need to practice that. We need to know what that means. And, and we need to have an economic system that makes it possible. Otherwise, all my mouthing off, we can citizen, we can show up, we can know our power. That's just a pipe dream. When you can't pay your rent. <laughs> you know, it's just like, we don't even have time. So how do we do that? And I'm just like, oh, we, we, we are bringing it in season two with some historical analysis, with some highlighting people doing stuff today. Um, and, and I hope we do season three. We have more themes to go in harder on it. That's the show. That's what we're up to. Howtocitizen.com. People can point their browsers there, find us on social, um, and just give it, give it a whirl. Give it a listen. But I would, I would strongly encourage people, you know, if you have a lot of time, roll back to the beginning of season one, play it in order, and feel the evolution. You kind of relive some of the election stuff too. But if you had limited time like most people, I get it. Just start with season two. But listen in order, because we're building something. And I'd, I'd love for your listeners to, to help us all build it. This is not a show that's just about how smart Baratunde is. <laughs> or how smart his guests are. It is about what we can and must do to preserve our freedom. I fucking love it, man. So good. Thanks for letting me go on such a rant. <laughs> I didn't know. I no, 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 no. I love all of it. I want everybody to go check it out. Uh, how to Citizen with Baratunde podcast, how to be black 
uh, an amazing book, an amazing memoir, your TED Talk from June of 2019, How to Destruct Racism, One Headline at a Time. Uh, Brian Williams called it, you know, one of the best TED Talks ever, and that's high praise. You've just done so much. I it want is. people to check it out. All the things will be in the show notes. But uh, Baratunde, Rafiq, Thurston, thank you See? so much for joining <laughs> us today. This was uh, just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, this is a really good part of my day. I appreciate your time and what you're doing with your platform and with your voice. And thanks for sharing so much of your own story. It made it more of a conversation and less of like an interrogation. Some of these, you know, shows and be like somebody just shows up with a thousand questions and just like extracting, you know, bits. It's like mining, story mining. And I appreciate you engaging as well. I feel like I've learned a lot too. 100%. Thank you, brother. All right. Well, my friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining Baratunde and me. To learn more about Baratunde Thurston and all things Let's Give a Damn, visit baratunde.com and letsgiveadam.com. If you're still listening, you're a real one, and I love you to pieces. Thank you for showing up today. I'm so grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>